0: THE BROWNING VERSION BY Terence RADIGAN PART TWO ANDREW COME IN! He crosses below the table. Taplow enters, a trifle breathless and guilty-looking. He carries a medicine bottle, wrapped and sealed. Ah, Taplow, good. You have been running, I see. Taplow Yes, sir. He crosses to the end of the settee. ANDREW there was a queue at the chemist's, I suppose. Taplow. Yes, sir. Andrew. And, doubtless, an even longer one at Stuart's. Taplow. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. I mean... He looks at Millie. Yes, sir. He crosses below the settee to Millie and hands her the medicine. Millie. You were late yourself, Andrew. Andrew. Exactly and for that I apologize, Taplow. Taplow. That's all right, sir. Andrew, crossing below the desk and moving left of it. Luckily, we have still a good hour before lock-up, so nothing has been lost. He puts the timetable on the desk. Frank, moving to the door, to Millie. May I use the shortcut? I'm going back to my digs. Andrew sits at his desk and opens a book. Millie, "'Rising and moving upright of the settee. "'Yes, go ahead. Come back soon. "'If Andrew hasn't finished, we can sit in the garden. "'She crosses above the table, center, "'and picks up the shopping basket. "'She puts the medicine on the sideboard. "'I'd better go and see about dinner. "'She goes out, up-center. "'Andrew, to Frank. "'Taplow is desirous of obtaining a remove from my form, Hunter.' so that he can spend the rest of his career here playing happily with the crucibles, retorts, and Bunsen burners of your science fifth. Frank, turning at the door. Oh. Has he? Andrew. Has he what? Frank. Obtained his remove. Andrew. After a pause. He has obtained exactly what he deserves, no less and certainly no more. Taplo mutters an explosion of mirth. Frank nods, thoughtfully, and goes out. Andrew has caught sight of Taplo's contorted face, but passes no remark on it. He beckons Taplo across and signs to him to sit in the chair right of the desk. Taplo sits. Andrew picks up a copy of the Agamemnon, and Taplo does the same. Line 1399. Begin. He leans back. Taplo, reading slowly. Chorus. We are surprised at. Andrew, automatically. We marvel at. Taplo. We marvel at thy tongue, how bold thou art, that you. Andrew, thou. His interruptions are automatic. His thoughts are evidently far distant. Taplo. Thou can. Andrew, canst. Taplo. Canst boastfully speak, Andrew, utter such a boastful speech, Taplow, utter such a boastful speech over, in a sudden rush of inspiration, the bloody corpse of the husband you have slain. Andrew puts on his glasses and looks down at his text for the first time. Taplow looks apprehensive. Andrew, after a pause, Taplow. I presume you are using a different text from mine. Taplow, no, sir. Andrew, that is strange, for the line as I have it reads, something in Greek. However diligently I search, I can discover no bloody, no corpse, no you have slain, simply husband. Taplow, yes, sir, that's right. Andrew, then why do you invent words that simply are not there? Taplow. I thought they sounded better, sir. More exciting. After all, she did kill her husband, sir. With relish. She's just been revealed with his dead body and Cassandra's weltering in gore. Andrew. I am delighted at this evidence, Taplow, of your interest in the rather more lurid aspects of dramaturgy. But I feel I must remind you that you are supposed to be construing Greek, not collaborating with Aeschylus. He leans back. Taplow, greatly daring. Yes, but still, sir, translator's license, sir. I didn't get anything wrong. And after all, it is a play, and not just a bit of Greek constru. Andrew, momentarily at a loss. I seem to detect a note of end of term in your remarks. I'm not denying that the Agamemnon is a play. It is perhaps the greatest play ever written, He leans forward. Taplow, quickly. I wonder how many people in the form think that. He pauses, instantly frightened of what he has said. Sorry, sir. Shall I go on? Andrew does not answer. He sits motionless, staring at his book. Shall I go on, sir? There's another pause. Andrew raises his head slowly from his book. Andrew, murmuring gently, not looking at Taplow. When I was a very young man, only two years older than you are now, Taplow, I wrote, for my own pleasure, a translation of the Agamemnon—a very free translation, I remember, in rhyming couplets. Taplow. The whole Agamemnon, in verse. That must have been hard work, sir. Andrew. It was hard work, but I derived great joy from it. The play had so excited and moved me— That I wished to communicate, however imperfectly, some of that emotion to others. When I had finished it, I remember I thought it very beautiful. Almost more beautiful than the original. He leans back. Taplow. Was it ever published, sir? Andrew. No. Yesterday I looked for the manuscript while I was packing my papers. I was unable to find it. I fear it is lost, like so many other things. Lost for good. Taplow. Hard luck, sir. Andrew is silent again. Taplow steals a timid glance at him. Shall I go on, sir? Andrew, with a slight effort, lowers his eyes again to his text. Andrew, leaning forward, raising his voice slightly. No. Go back and get that last line right. Taplow, out of Andrew's vision, as he thinks... "'makes a disgusted grimace in his direction. "'Taplow. "'That thou canst utter such a boastful speech over thy husband. "'Andrew. "'Yes. "'And now, if you would be so kind, you will do the line again, "'without the facial contortion which you just found necessary to accompany it. "'Taplow is about to begin the line again. "'Millie enters up-center, hurriedly. "'She is wearing an apron. "'Taplow rises.' Millie. The headmaster's just coming up the drive. Don't tell him I'm in. The fish pie isn't in the oven yet. She exits up center. Taplow, turning hopefully to Andrew. I'd better go, hadn't I, sir? I mean, I don't want to be in the way. Andrew. We do not yet know that it is I the headmaster wishes to see. Other people live in this building. There is a knock at the door up right. Come in, Dr. Frobisher enters upright. He looks more like a distinguished diplomat than a doctor of literature and a classical scholar. He is in the middle fifties and goes to a very good tailor. Andrew rises. Frobisher. Ah, Crocker Harris, I've caught you in. I'm so glad. He crosses behind the settee and comes down left of it. I hope I'm not disturbing you. Andrew. I've been taking a pupil in extra work. Taplow eases below the table center. Frobisher. On the penultimate day of term, that argues either great conscientiousness on your part or considerable backwardness on his. Andrew. Perhaps a combination of both. Frobisher. Quite so, but as this is my only chance of speaking to you before tomorrow, I think that perhaps your pupil will be good enough to excuse us. He turns politely to Taplow. "'Taplow. Oh, yes, sir, that's really quite all right.' He grabs his books off Andrew's desk. Andrew, crossing to Taplow. "'I'm extremely sorry, Taplow. You will please explain to your father exactly what occurred over this lost hour, and tell him that I shall in due course be writing to him to return the money involved.' Frobisher moves below the settee to the fireplace. Taplow, hurriedly. "'Yes, sir, but please don't bother, sir.' He dashes to the door, upright. "'I know it's all right, sir. Thank you, sir.' He darts out. Frobisher, idly picking up an ornament on the mantelpiece. "'Have the Gilberts called on you yet?' He turns to Andrew. Andrew, moving center. "'The Gilberts, sir? Who are they?' "'Frobisher. Gilbert is your successor with the Lower Fifth. He is down here today with his wife.' and as they will be taking over this flat, I thought perhaps you wouldn't mind if they came in to look it over. Andrew, of course not. Frobisher, I've told you about him, I think. He's a very brilliant young man and won exceptionally high honors at Oxford. Andrew, so I understand, sir. Frobisher, not, of course, as high as the honors you yourself won there. He didn't, for instance, win the Chancellor's Prize for Latin Verse— or the Gainsford? Andrew. He won the Hertford Latin, then. Frobisher, replacing the ornament. No. Mildly surprised. Did you win that, too? Andrew nods. It's sometimes rather hard to remember that you are perhaps the most brilliant classical scholar we have ever had at the school. Andrew. You are very kind. Frobisher, urbanely correcting his gaffe, Hard to remember, I mean, because of your other activities, your brilliant work on the school timetable, for instance, and also for your heroic battle for so long and against such odds with the soul-destroying Lower Fifth. Andrew. I have not found that my soul has been destroyed by the Lower Fifth, headmaster. Frobisher. I was joking, of course. Andrew. Oh, I see. Frobisher. Is your wife in— Andrew, uh, no, not at the moment. Frobisher, I shall have a chance of saying good-bye to her tomorrow. He moves in a few steps below the settee. I am rather glad I have got you to myself. I have a delicate matter, two rather delicate matters to broach. Andrew, moving in slightly, indicating the settee. Please, sit down. He stands at the left end of the settee. Frobisher, Thank you. He sits. Now, you have been with us in all eighteen years, haven't you? Andrew nods. It is extremely unlucky that you should have had to retire at so comparatively early an age, and so short a time before you would have been eligible for a pension. He is regarding his nails as he speaks, studiously avoiding meeting Andrew's gaze. Andrew crosses below the settee to the fireplace and stands facing it. Andrew, after a pause. You have decided, then, not to award me a pension. Frobisher. Not I, my dear fellow. It has nothing at all to do with me. It's the governors who, I'm afraid, have been forced to turn down your application. I put your case to them as well as I could. Andrew turns and faces Frobisher but they decided with great regret that they couldn't make an exception to the rule. Andrew. But I thought, my wife thought, that an exception was made some five years ago. Frobisher. Ah, in the case of Buller, you mean. True. But the circumstances with Buller were quite remarkable. It was, after all, in playing rugger against the school that he received that injury. Andrew. Yes. I remember. Frobisher. And then the governors received a petition from boys, old boys and parents, with over five hundred signatures. Andrew. I would have signed that petition myself, but through some oversight I was not asked. Frobisher. He was a splendid fellow, Buller. Splendid. Doing very well now, too, I gather. Andrew. I'm delighted to hear it. Frobisher. Your own case, of course, is equally deserving, if not more so, for Buller was a younger man. Unfortunately, rules are rules, and are not made to be broken every few years. At any rate, that is the governor's view. Andrew. I quite understand. Frobisher. I knew you would. Now, might I ask you a rather impertinent question? Andrew. Certainly. Frobisher you have, I take it, private means? Andrew. My wife has some. Frobisher. Ah, yes. Your wife has often told me of her family connections. I understand her father has a business in Bradford, isn't it? Andrew. Yes. He runs a men's clothing shop in the arcade. Frobisher. Indeed. Your wife's remarks had led me to imagine something a little more extensive. Andrew. My father-in-law made a settlement on my wife at the time of our marriage. She has about three hundred a year of her own. I have nothing. Is that the answer to your question, headmaster? Frobisher. Yes. Thank you for your frankness. Now, this private school you are going to. Andrew. My salary at the Crammers is to be two hundred pounds a year. Frobisher. Quite so. With board and lodging, of course— Andrew, for eight months of the year. Frobisher, yes, I see. He ponders a second. Of course, you know there is the school benevolent fund that deals with cases of actual hardship. Andrew, there will be no actual hardship, headmaster. Frobisher, no, I'm glad you take that view. I must admit, though, I had hoped that your own means had proved a little more ample. Your wife had certainly led me to suppose, Andrew. I am not denying that a pension would have been very welcome, headmaster, but I see no reason to quarrel with the governor's decision. What is the other delicate matter you have to discuss? Frobisher. Well, it concerns the arrangements at prize-giving tomorrow. You are, of course, prepared to say a few words. Andrew. I had assumed you would call on me to do so. Frobisher. Of course. It is always done, and I know the boys appreciate the custom. Andrew, crossing to the upstage end of the desk. I've already made a few notes of what I am going to say. Perhaps you would care, Frobisher. No, no, that isn't necessary at all. I know I can trust your discretion, not to say your wit. It will be, I know, a very moving moment for you. Indeed, for us all but, as I'm sure you realize, it is far better to keep these occasions from becoming too heavy and distressing. You know how little the boys appreciate sentiment. Andrew, I do. Frobisher, that is why I've planned my own reference to you at the end of my speech to be rather more light and jocular than I would otherwise have made it. Andrew, I quite understand. He moves to left of the desk, puts on his glasses, and picks up his speech. I, too, have prepared a few little jokes and puns for my speech. One, a play of words on "voile," Farewell, and Wally, the Christian name of a backward boy in my class, is, I think, rather happy. Frobisher. Yes. Very neat. That should go down extremely well. Andrew. I'm glad you like it. Frobisher, rising and crossing to right of the desk. "'Well, now, there is a particular favor I have to ask of you "'in connection with the ceremony, "'and I know I shall not have to ask in vain. "'Fletcher, as you know, is leaving too. "'Andrew. "'Yes. "'He is going into the city, they tell me. "'Frobisher. "'Yes. "'Now, he is, of course, considerably junior to you. "'He has only been here, let me see, five years. "'But, as you know, he has done great things for our cricket.' Positive wonders when you remember what doldrums we were in before he came. Andrew, our win at Lords this year was certainly most inspiriting. Frobisher, exactly. He moves above the desk. Now I'm sure that tomorrow the boys will make the occasion of his farewell speech a tremendous demonstration of gratitude. The applause might go on for minutes. You know what the boys feel about Lords. And I seriously doubt my ability to cut it short or even, I admit, the propriety of trying to do so. So, you see the quandary in which I am placed? Andrew. Perfectly. You wish to refer to me, and for me to make my speech, before you come to Fletcher? Frobisher. It's extremely awkward, and I feel wretched about asking it of you, but it's more for your own sake than for mine or Fletcher's that I do. After all, a climax is what one must try to work up to on these occasions. Andrew. Naturally, Headmaster, I wouldn't wish to provide an anticlimax. Frobisher. You really mustn't take it amiss, my dear fellow. The boys, in applauding Fletcher for several minutes, and yourself, say, for—well, not for quite so long—won't be making any personal demonstration between you. It will be quite impersonal, I assure you, quite impersonal. Andrew, I understand. Frobisher, patting Andrew's shoulder, warmly. I knew you would. He looks at his watch. And I can hardly tell you how wisely I think you have chosen. Well, now, as that is all my business, I think perhaps I had better be getting along. He crosses to right of the table, center. This has been a terribly busy day for me. For you, too, I imagine. Andrew, yes. Millie enters up-center. She has taken off her apron and tidied herself up. She comes to left of Frobisher. Millie, in her social manner. Ah, Headmaster, how good of you to drop in. Frobisher, more at home with her than with Andrew. Mrs. Crocker Harris, how are you? They shake hands. You're looking extremely well, I must say. To Andrew. Has anyone ever told you, Crocker Harris, that you have a very attractive wife? Andrew. Many people, sir, but then I hardly need to be told. Millie. Can I persuade you to stay for a few moments and have a drink, Headmaster? It's so rarely we have the pleasure of seeing you. Frobisher. Unfortunately, dear lady, I was just on the point of leaving. I have two frantic parents waiting for me at home. You are dining with us tomorrow, both of you, aren't you? Millie. Yes, indeed, and so looking forward to it. Frobisher and Millie move to the door upright. Frobisher. I'm so glad. We can say our sad farewells then. To Andrew. Au revoir, Crocker Harris, and thank you very much. He opens the door. Andrew gives a slight bow. Millie holds the door open. Frobisher goes out. Millie. To Andrew. Don't forget to take your medicine, dear, will you? She goes out. Andrew. No. Frobisher. Off. Lucky invalid to have such a very charming nurse. Millie, off. I really don't know what to say to all these compliments, Headmaster. I don't believe you mean a word of them. Andrew turns and looks out of the window. Frobisher, off. Every word. Till tomorrow, then. Goodbye. The outer door is heard to slam. Andrew is staring out of the window. Millie enters upright. Millie. Well, Do we get it? She stands on the step. Andrew, turning and moving below the chair left of his desk, absently. Get what? Millie, the pension, of course. Do we get it? Andrew, no. Millie, crossing above the settee to center. My God, why not? Andrew, sitting at his desk, it's against the rules. Millie, Buller got it, didn't he? Buller got it. What's the idea of giving it to him and not to us? Andrew. The governors are afraid of establishing a precedent. Millie. The mean old brutes. My God, what I wouldn't like to say to them. She moves above the desk and rounds on Andrew. And what did you say? Just sat there and made a joke in Latin, I suppose. Andrew. There wasn't very much I could say in Latin or any other language. Millie. Oh, wasn't there. I'd have said it all right. I wouldn't just have sat there twiddling my thumbs and taking it from that old phony of a headmaster. But then, of course, I'm not a man. Andrew is turning the pages of the Agamemnon, not looking at her. What do they expect you to do? Live on my money, I suppose? Andrew. There has never been any question of that. I shall be perfectly able to support myself. Millie. Yourself? Doesn't the marriage service say something about the husband supporting his wife? She leans on the desk. Doesn't it? You ought to know. Andrew. Yes, it does. Millie. And how do you think you're going to do that on two hundred a year? Andrew. I shall do my utmost to save some of it. You're welcome to it, if I can. "'Millie. Thank you for precisely nothing.' Andrew underlines a word in the text he is reading. "'What else did the old fool have to say?' She moves to right of the chair, right of the desk. "'Andrew. The headmaster. He wants me to make my speech tomorrow before instead of after Fletcher.' "'Millie. Sitting right of the desk. Yes. I knew he was going to ask that. Andrew.' Without surprise, you knew. Millie, yes, he asked my advice about it a week ago. I told him to go ahead. I knew you wouldn't mind, and as there isn't a Mrs. Fletcher to make me look a fool, I didn't give two hoots. There is a knock on the door upright. Come in. Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert enter upright. He is about twenty two, and his wife a year or so younger. Millie rises and stands at the downstage corner of the desk. "'Gilbert. Mr. Crocker-Harris?' "'Andrew. Yes.' He rises. "'Is it Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert? The headmaster told me you might look in.' Mrs. Gilbert, crossing above the settee to center. "'I do hope we're not disturbing you.' Gilbert follows Mrs. Gilbert and stands downstage of and slightly behind her. "'Andrew. Not at all. This is my wife.' "'Mrs. Gilbert. How do you do?' Andrew. Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert are our successors to this flat, my dear. Millie. Oh, yes. She moves to left of Mrs. Gilbert. How nice to meet you both. Gilbert. How do you do? We really won't keep you more than a second. My wife thought as we were here you wouldn't mind us taking a squint at our future home. Mrs. Gilbert. Unnecessarily. This is the drawing room, I suppose? Gilbert crosses to the fireplace. He looks for a moment at the picture above the mantelpiece, then turns and watches the others. Millie. Well, it's really a living room. Andrew uses it as a study. Mrs. Gilbert. How charmingly you've done it. Millie. Oh, do you think so? I'm afraid it isn't nearly as nice as I'd like to make it. But a schoolmaster's wife has to think of so many other things besides curtains and covers. Boys with dirty books, and a husband with leaky fountain pens, for instance. Mrs. Gilbert. Yes, I suppose so. Of course, I haven't been a schoolmaster's wife for very long, you know. Gilbert. Don't swank, darling. You haven't been a schoolmaster's wife at all yet. Mrs. Gilbert. Oh, yes, I have. For two months. You were a schoolmaster when I married you. Gilbert. Prep school doesn't count. Milly. Have you only been married two months? Mrs. Gilbert. Two months and sixteen days. Gilbert. Seventeen. Millie. Sentimentally. Andrew, did you hear? They've only been married two months. Andrew. Indeed. Is that all? Mrs. Gilbert, crossing above Millie to the window. Oh, look, darling. They've got a garden. It is yours, isn't it? Millie. Oh, yes. Yes. It's only a pocket handkerchief, I'm afraid, but it's very useful to Andrew. He often works out there, don't you, dear? Andrew. Yes, indeed. I find it very agreeable. Millie. Moving to the door up center. Shall I show you the rest of the flat? It's a bit untidy, I'm afraid, but you must forgive that. She opens the door. Mrs. Gilbert. Moving up left of Millie. Oh, of course. Millie and the kitchen is in a terrible mess. I'm in the middle of cooking dinner. Mrs. Gilbert, breathlessly. Oh, do you cook? Millie. Oh, yes, I have to. We haven't had a maid for five years. Mrs. Gilbert. Oh, I do think that's wonderful of you. I'm scared stiff of having to do it for Peter. I know the first dinner I have to cook for him will wreck our married life. Gilbert. Highly probable. Mrs. Gilbert exits up center. Millie, following Mrs. Gilbert. Well, these days we've all got to try and do things we weren't really brought up to do. She goes out, closing the door. Andrew, to Gilbert. Don't you want to see the rest of the flat? Gilbert, crossing to center. No, I leave all that sort of thing to my wife. She's the boss. I thought perhaps you could tell me something about the lower fifth. Andrew. What would you like to know? Gilbert. Well, sir, quite frankly, I'm petrified. Andrew. I don't think you need to be. May I give you some sherry? He comes down left to the cupboard. Gilbert. Thank you. Andrew. They are mostly boys of about 15 or 16. They are not very difficult to handle. He takes out a bottle and a glass. Gilbert. The headmaster said you ruled them with a rod of iron. He called you the Himmler of the Lower Fifth. Andrew, turning, bottle and glass in hand. Did he? The Himmler of the Lower Fifth. I think he exaggerated. I hope he exaggerated. The Himmler of the Lower Fifth. He puts the bottle on the desk, then fills the glass. Gilbert, puzzled. He only meant that you kept the most wonderful discipline. I must say, I do admire you for that. I couldn't even manage that with eleven-year-olds, so what I'll be like with fifteens and sixteens I shudder to think. He moves below the chair, right of the desk. Andrew. It is not so difficult. He hands Gilbert the glass. They aren't bad boys. Sometimes a little wild and unfeeling, perhaps, but not bad. The Himmler of the Lower Fifth. Dear me. He turns to the cabinet with the bottle. Gilbert. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that. I've been tactless, I'm afraid. Andrew. Oh, no. He puts the bottle in the cupboard. Please sit down. He stands by the downstage end of the desk. Gilbert. Thank you, sir. He sits right of the desk. Andrew. From the very beginning, I realized that I didn't possess the knack of making myself liked. A knack that you will find you do possess. Gilbert. Do you think so? Andrew. Oh, yes, I am quite sure of it. He moves up left of the desk. It is not a quality of great importance to a schoolmaster, though, for too much of it, as you may also find, is as great a danger as the total lack of it. Forgive me lecturing, won't you? Gilbert, I want to learn. Andrew, I can only teach you from my own experience. For two or three years, I tried very hard to communicate to the boys some of my own joy in the great literature of the past. Of course, I failed, as you will fail, nine hundred and ninety-nine times out of a thousand. But a single success can atone, and more than atone, for all the failure in the world. And sometimes, Very rarely, it is true, but sometimes I had that success. That was in the early years. Gilbert, eagerly listening. Please go on, sir. Andrew. In the early years, too, I discovered an easy substitute for popularity. He picks up his speech. I had, of course, acquired, we all do, many little mannerisms and tricks of speech, and I found that the boys were beginning to laugh at me. I was very happy at that, and encouraged the boys' laughter by playing up to it. It made our relationship so very much easier. They didn't like me as a man, but they found me funny as a character, and you can teach more things by laughter than by earnestness, for I never did have much sense of humor. So, for a time, you see, I was quite a success as a schoolmaster. He stops. I fear this is all very personal and embarrassing to you. Forgive me. You need have no fears about the lower fifth. He puts the speech into his pocket and turns to the window. Gilbert rises and moves above the desk. Gilbert, after a pause. I'm afraid I said something that hurt you very much. It's myself you must forgive, sir. Believe me, I'm desperately sorry. Andrew, turning downstage and leaning slightly on the back of the swivel chair. There's no need. You were merely telling me what I should have known for myself. Perhaps I did in my heart, and hadn't the courage to acknowledge it. I knew, of course, that I was not only not liked, but now positively disliked. I had realized, too, that the boys, for many long years now, had ceased to laugh at me. I don't know why they no longer found me a joke. Perhaps it was my illness. No, I don't think it was that." something deeper than that. Not a sickness of the body, but a sickness of the soul. At all events, it didn't take much discernment on my part to realize I had become an utter failure as a schoolmaster. Still, stupidly enough, I hadn't realized that I was also feared. The Himmler of the Lower Fifth. I suppose that will become my epitaph. Gilbert is now deeply embarrassed and rather upset but he remains silent. He sits on the upstage end of the window seat, with a mild laugh. I cannot for the life of me imagine why I should choose to unburden myself to you, a total stranger, when I have been silent to others for so long. Perhaps it is because my very unworthy mantle is about to fall on your shoulders. If that is so, I shall take a prophet's privilege and foretell that you will have a very great success with the lower fifth. Gilbert. Thank you, sir. I shall do my best. Andrew. I can't offer you a cigarette, I'm afraid. I don't smoke. Gilbert. That's all right, sir. Nor do I. Mrs. Gilbert. Off. Thank you so much for showing me round. Millie and Mrs. Gilbert enter up-center. Andrew rises. Millie comes down right of the table-center, picks up the papers on the settee, and puts them on the fender down-right. Mrs. Gilbert comes down left of the table center to right of Mrs. Gilbert. Andrew, I trust your wife has found no major snags in your new flat. Mr. Gilbert, no, none at all. Mrs. Gilbert, just imagine, Peter, Mr. and Mrs. Crocker-Harris first met each other on a holiday in the Lake District. Isn't that a coincidence? Gilbert, a little distray. Yes, yes, it certainly is on a walking tour too. Andrew turns and looks out of the window. Millie. Andrew was on a walking tour. No walking for me. I can't abide it. I was staying with my uncle. That's Sir William Bartop, you know. You may have heard of him. Gilbert and Mrs. Gilbert try to look as though they had heard of him constantly. She moves below the settee. He'd taken a house near Windermere. Quite a mansion it was, really. Rather silly for an old gentleman living alone and Andrew knocked on our front door one day and asked the footman for a glass of water. So my uncle invited him in to tea. Mrs. Gilbert, moving center. Our meeting wasn't quite as romantic as that. Gilbert, I knocked her flat on her face. He moves behind Mrs. Gilbert and puts his hands on her shoulders. Mrs. Gilbert, not with love at first sight, with the swing doors of our hotel bar. So, of course, then he apologized and... Andrew turns and faces into the room. Gilbert, brusquely. Darling, the Crocker-Harrises, I'm sure, have far more important things to do than to listen to your detailed but inaccurate account of our very sordid little encounter. Why not just say I married you for your money and leave it at that? Come on, we must go. Mrs. Gilbert, moving above the settee to Millie. Isn't he awful to me? Millie, moving round to the right end of the settee to the door upright. Men have no souls, my dear. My husband is just as bad. Mrs. Gilbert. Goodbye, Mr. Crocker Harris. Andrew, with a slight bow. Goodbye. Mrs. Gilbert, moving to the door upright to Millie. I think your idea about the dining room is awfully good, if only I can get the permit. Millie and Mrs. Gilbert go out. Gilbert has dallied to say goodbye alone to Andrew. Gilbert. Goodbye, sir. Andrew, crossing center to left of Gilbert, you will, I know, respect the confidences I have just made to you. Gilbert, I should hate you to think I wouldn't. Andrew, I am sorry to have embarrassed you. I don't know what came over me. I have not been very well, you know. Goodbye, my dear fellow, and my best wishes. Gilbert, thank you the very best of good luck to you too, sir, in your future career. Andrew, my future career. Yes, thank you. Gilbert, well, goodbye, sir. He crosses upright and goes out.